My guest this week is a comedian, writer, author, humanitarian, and syndicated columnist. He has been doing stand-up in clubs, TV, cruise ships, and wherever jokes are told for over 40 years. He wrote for and supervised writing for Seinfeld in the third season and had ideas used in the last season. He was he has been using his humor for the past 15 years in the fight against Parkinson's disease. It's an honor to talk to Mark Jaffe. Hey, hey Ian. How are you? I'm doing good. Yeah. So, you were born in the Cleveland area? I was born here. I still live here. Um, you know, ventured away for a few years at different stages of my life. So, um, but yeah, I love it here and um, was uh, only conflicted at one point when I first got the Seinfeld gig and uh, had to go out to California and was like, oh, maybe I should be out here. But made the decision that we wouldn't give up our home in Cleveland, wanted to raise kids here rather than out in L.A. Okay, I, I went to Cleveland um, I went, trying to go to every major league stadium. Oh, yeah. And w did you make it? Uh, yeah. Jake, yeah. Which which one? The old one or the new one? Jacob's Progressive, whatever. It's the same okay. same one, right? We change it every other year what the name of it is. <laughs> right. Who's ever willing to give us the most money? Yeah. Yeah. And how far are you along in your... Uh, efforts to get to every stadium 22 out of the 30 oh well that's great what was your first television memory like of me watching television yeah um uh, first television memory wow um i don't uh let's see i remember the tv <laughs> i can picture okay. the tv <laughs> it was on a metal stand that you on wheels that you could roll around uh, the room and it was in black and white and I remember some watching it for some major um, uh, events like uh, the moon landing and um, and uh, I remember speaking of baseball like Carl Fisk's home run uh, and uh, but the first thing I used to watch probably it was probably like cartoons like uh, God I remember trying doing Winky Dink you know what that was, where you would put something over the screen and you could draw on it and make something happen. Um, that was the show that ruined uh, a lot of televisions. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> don't use magic marker and don't forget to put the protective thing over the cover. But um, uh, I remember loving uh, uh, things like Get Smart and um, I remember watching like variety shows, the Flip Wilson show. And, um, you know, we couldn't stay occasionally, like if I would have a sleepover or something, I would be able to stay lit, up late and watch the Tonight Show where I could, you know, see a comedian potentially. Not that that was my, I just, Johnny Carson was like, that was a big thing to do and be up so late. Mm. Um, so those are the early memories. And uh, some of the, I love Twilight Zone or, um, yeah, Night Gallery, some of those things, some scary stuff, which I don't know why I did, but... Um, so, yeah, those are some of my earliest memories of TV. Were you a funny kid? Uh, you know what? I wasn't funny. Um, like, just, and as everybody who knows me now goes, I don't know how he's funny. He's not funny in person. <laughs> so, which I'll prove to you over the course of the next uh, <laughs> little bit. Um, but um, I wasn't particularly, like, wild crazy or super witty or anything but i always enjoyed 
doing from when I was little, writing funny stuff. I always liked the writing aspect of it. I would, I wrote funny poems when I was a kid, um, and uh, wrote like whenever there was an opportunity to get up in front of people and do some performance of something I'd written, I was always happy to do that. And and I was a little bit of the class clown. I mean, I would certainly seek moments uh, when there was uh, just that that right moment when a good line would hit and and I would I would get those in there um, but it was more when there was an opportunity that was sanctioned <laughs> through the you know some kind of performance or just being in front of the class or something that I would always uh, gravitate towards the funny stuff the best is when you make a joke in class and the teacher laughs yeah yeah Occasionally I got that, and occasionally the teachers were my, um, were, were the, uh, kind of the butt of the joke. Um, like when we would do, boy, even in, in grad school, I remember doing a, some kind of bit where we uh, did a song roasting the teacher. I don't remember what the event was, why we were allowed to do that, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I was always happy to do that too. Don't know if it helped my grades, but it's always good. If you make your your neighbor in class laugh and then they get kicked out or something because they're laughing so hard and then you're like what what <laughs> yeah that was fun. who were your early comedic influences you know i would say it's it's always painful to say this nowadays but certainly bill cosby um woody allen <laughs> all the all the uh, sexual uh, predators <laughs> um <laughs> and um I mentioned Flip Wilson. Uh, I always like that. Um, trying to think of other comedians when I was, uh, you know, I mean, then it's there. There's somehow a gap of when, you know, when I was little and used to like all these people and would listen to their albums. You would I would get comedy albums and stuff. But um, and then to like what I consider more my modern day, like once I started in college, listening to Steve Martin was just a revelation. And uh, he was he was so phenomenal. And then um, just uh, from that point on, just starting to see comedians live and trying to do stand up myself. A lot of contemporaries that are, you know, would influence me all the time. Unfortunately, sometimes too much. You know, when I was younger and just starting out, I'd uh, see somebody and if they were at all my sensibility, I would uh, you know, find myself trying to tell jokes kind of like them on stage and that wasn't good you also wrote for gary shanling and polarizer yeah so yeah so gary was uh somebody i was thinking of when i think of people that were an influence i didn't know gary at all until i moved out to la and was pursuing uh, a career um actually i met him very short shortly after i moved out to la and um and he was just you know so brilliant and so great and so I started writing for him. Um, but I also, on the negative side, I found myself writing jokes like him for myself. And, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't in any way fighting myself. But the good thing was, is that I had a good ear and um, can, could get into people's heads uh, to, to a great degree. So I, I felt able to write jokes for Gary and certainly for Paul um, and, and later Jerry that they that 
just okay this is a this is a joke paul riser would do like sometimes i would occasionally write a joke that i'd go oh this is a, a stephen wright joke and and you know it wouldn't fit for myself for sure or you know paul or whoever i was writing at the time but i'd put away like oh that's a that's a stephen wright joke so uh i i could for the most part have a good sensibility of of what the voices were of the people who I was able to write for. Uh, and to some degree, it's because like, I don't, I couldn't have written, I, you know, occasionally a Stephen Wright type joke would come to me. But for the most part, if Stephen Wright called me up and said, Hey, let's work together. I'd be like, ah, I, I got a few here maybe, but you know, I, I can't sit there for hours and work on jokes with you because <laughs> and my brain doesn't work quite the same way yours does. Or you know a Mitch Hedberg or some somebody of those that were within my framework, I could I think do a good job of of getting jokes jokes in with them and jokes that they would like. So I saw a, you on uh, Evening at the Improv. Oh and... gosh, uh, let's see, Evening at the. Oh yeah, I did one Evening in the Improv. I did some e Evening. What they do? Oh no, Comedy on the Roads or things like that. Yeah. Yeah, and you told a joke that I just think is brilliant about how you got the Christian Science Monitor delivered to your house, <laughs> but the delivery boy got sick, so that's the end of that. Yeah, <laughs> it's a great joke. Thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember. You know what? Um, what was the line? Because I didn't, I didn't have it exactly right. Or I think it was after the show. Maybe um, Larry Miller was there, and I remember he gave me an improvement for that, but I can't remember what, what it is now, but he saw, he wasn't on the same show, but they would tape several. So, hmm. um, he, he was there for that. And, uh, um, yeah, that was, uh, thanks. <laughs> mm -hmm. Occasionally I write good ones for myself. Well, a lot of good, a lot of funny jokes. I was watching a lot of your, uh, stand up that I could, the stuff I could find on the internet. Yeah. Not, tell me what you can find. Cause I can't find anything except that. Something that you put up, Oh, uh, yeah, okay. In Cleveland. Just, yeah, more recently stuff. And a 1986 episode of Comedy Tonight. Oh, really? Wow. Because I guess this guy, Mir Yadan or something like that, right. one of the other comedians that was on there, taped it and, and then put it on YouTube. Oh, okay. So if I look up uh, uh, Comedy Tonight 1986 or something? or That should come up. The host yeah. was a guy from Dallas. Okay. If that... Yeah. I don't even, I don't, I don't know. remember uh, Bill, the guy who, uh, sometimes I mix up the shows, Comedy Tonight, that was, I don't know if that was one from New York, but yeah, it yeah. used to be all these shows were on and, and you try to, you know, I, I probably did half a dozen or maybe, you know, 10 to a dozen, something like that of different ones. And uh, it was easy, easier, I think, because now people do wait, they get a half hour special or something like that, or they they might go in on these shows that have a conglomerate of, you know, do like six comedians and then you everybody's doing 10 minutes or whatever it is um, for Netflix or for, you know, I don't know, whatever, Amazon Prime or, or something like that. But I, it seems to me that people use up material a lot faster hmm. today. Uh, you're doing doing half hour shows for sure than we've ours used to be like, you know, four to six minute sets. And you tried not to repeat. You didn't want to repeat, but you know it could be over the course of years that you would get enough shows. But you, by then, you're, you know, constantly 
rewriting or uh, writing more stuff. So your your own show was developing. So it wasn't like you if if I did a half hour now, <laughs> it'd be another six years before. I do another half hour. Well, that's why, like, a comedian now does a Netflix special, this, then they do another one a year later. It's not as good as the first one. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's a little, it's hard to come up with good stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm amazed that the people do. And then on top of that, some people do are prolific on Twitter or, you know, other online social media, God knows what. And that's takes a lot of work. I'm I'm glad I'm pretty much out of it. I, Makes George Carlin look like like a super genius. Every two years, boom. Yeah, yeah. And Bill well, Cosby would go, would go for two hours. Yeah, yeah. I, I, he, Carlin was great. Yeah, he was an early one too. That would. Uh, I don't know if you uh, found in your in your research on me. Probably not. But uh, I I never got to meet Carlin, and I was disappointed because he played. A role that I started <laughs> in um, the uh, Bill and Ted Excellent Adventure, you know those movies. Yeah, Bill, the first Bill and Ted. So he was Carlin was uh, Rufus. That came out of a um, uh, an improv uh, kind of group that um, it was me, uh, Ed Solomon, uh, Chris Matheson, and uh, Mark Sandrowski and, and a guy named Ryan Rowe. Uh, it was the five of us would get together uh, at the Gower Theater or something on Sunday nights. We would just for, you know, we all had our, we're trying to make it and, and stand up or the business in some way or another. And uh, we got, we would get together and just do improv exercises amongst ourselves or sketches or anybody could bring anything. We weren't very versed in the, in the world of improv, but we had this one, we, we started doing Bill and Ted. And um, uh, Ed was Bill and Chris was Ted. And um, uh, I came up with this character of Rufus, um, who in, when we were doing it, Rufus was like a 25-year-old guy, which is what I probably was at the time. But I was still in high school. But all the kids thought I was super cool because I was, you know, I knew everything. <laughs> so... Uh, we, we would do that every week and just do different sketches. And then uh, one summer after we stopped doing it, uh, Ed and Chris went, had a, did a road trip. And while they were on the road trip, they wrote this script for Bill and Ted. The rest is history. Yeah, they've struggled a little bit with it. On the, but they were able to get the most recent one done. And uh, yeah, it's been a, it was a great franchise and certainly opened up the door for both uh, Chris and Ed to do lots of other stuff. And Ed, Ed has gone on to, you know, major major things like men in black and many other things so you went to the university of michigan and you got your mba was that like a, what go blue was that was that a fallback thing was that like a, a parent uh that was uh i'm 20 years old or 21 and don't know what i'm doing with my life and uh i like business we had a my dad ran a family business and uh, economics was my undergrad major, and I was interested in it. So, um, yeah, so it was just like the natural thing. I thought, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do, so I'll go get my MBA. And uh, it was it was very beneficial um, because uh, it was there that I, at Michigan, that I started doing stand-up uh, and met, um, met a bunch of people that 
when I first moved to LA were helped me out and are still friends today. Um, there was the guy who started, there was a student run club, uh, once a week on Wednesday night called laugh track at the Michigan union. And, uh, Mark Sandrowski, one of the guys who was in that, I mentioned in the improv group later, um, decided to start it. Um, and, uh, he would have, his idea was to have students do stand up for the first half of the show. And then he would bring in a professional comedian to be the headliner closer. And he had a his best friend from, um, uh, from elementary school that he was still, but then they went through high school and everything was Dave Collier. Hmm. And, uh, so he figured he would get Dave and Dave would help him get other, other people to be like the professional headliners. And, um, so that's what he started that my, my first year of grad school. And, um, uh, so I, I had done like once or twice I'd done stand up in college undergrad, uh, down in Atlanta. I was in a sketch group, uh, that was popular at the time. Saturday night live had just started exploding. And, um, and so we had a, like every other, every third week sketch group and occasionally somebody would get up and do stand up. So I did it a couple times and, uh, then I, so I thought, okay, well, let me try this. And, um, so I went to the first, uh, I signed up for the first laugh track and, uh, Mark put me on like right before Dave, because I'd had, I was the only one who had any experience. And, uh, man, I just, I killed, I mean, it was all students. And so I could get away with, you know, whatever. And, uh, it was, but I was, I just did great. And I was like, oh man, I'm, <laughs> I thought I was so hot. And then Collier gets up there and, oh my God, he just blew away the room. And for, you know, an hour and it was just, I said, oh man, there is a whole nother level to this stuff. And, um. But I went every week. That was my while I was in grad school. I went every week to Laugh Track, doing new material every week. Um, you know, five minutes of new stuff, and um, and every week it was going really great and getting better and better. And uh, so it was interesting. I got to meet the the different headliners who came through, uh, which usually had some kind of Detroit connection. Um, Mike Binder, I think, was the second week, um, and Mike was great, and he's you know, gone on to, to great things. Uh, Tim Allen came in one of the first couple weeks. Uh, he was just getting started. Um, guy named Jerry Elliott, Jeff Jenna, a few guys who are Midwest, more guys, but a guy named Gary Kern, who was so funny, but, uh, unfortunately Gary passed away at a young age. Um, still one of my favorite lines of all times is Gary. He, he has a line about, uh, uh, cause he smoked. And he said, I tried to quit smoking. I, I uh, for a while, I tried to uh, smoke a pipe, but it's so hard to bum a pipe. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so, you know, I, I just, uh, that's when I started to go, hey, maybe this is something. And between years of business school, we, you know, I found a, like a business job in Chicago working at the Board of Trade and the Mercantile Exchange for one of the brokerage firms or something to learn about that. But at nights I was like, oh, I'm in a big city. Let me go to the clubs. And I would start hitting the clubs in Chicago. And they had, uh, Chicago had showcase clubs. So it wasn't like, like here in 
Cleveland where there's headliners are coming in. They, they use local guys doing, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes and they'd have, you know, five guys a night for the show. And, um, uh, and some nights they would always have room for new people. And I went up there in the beginning of the, that they, their hierarchy was, uh, based on like the weekend, the guys who were good and established would get the weekend spots at the, for the Saturday night show, uh, uh, you know, they would get the best spots. And, uh, I worked my way up of just over the course of the summer to where I was getting, you know, some of those weekend spots and, and with other, just being able to be with other guys from Chicago who were really good. Um, uh, Steve and Leo were there. Um, they went on to write, um, uh, whatchamacallit, um, Space Jam and some other things. Um, and uh, a guy named Al Katz, I remember. Uh, some of the some of the guys stayed in Chicago, but uh, Uncle Larry, Larry Reeb was all over the place. Um, trying to think who was there. George Wallace would stop in. Joey Gutierrez uh, became friends. Joey uh, was a very good stand-up. He ended up um, out in L.A. producing and on a couple of shows, uh, he was on the Drew Carey show and actually, and Joey started, Joey wrote for Jerry, uh, after I did. Okay. And when did you move to LA? So then that was Chicago was summer of 81. Damn, it was a strike season. So I didn't get to see hmm. baseball like I wanted to, but, um, I thought you meant the writer's strike, which was also 81. No. Yeah. But I wasn't, it right. didn't affect me uh, at the time because I was still not, the right. field or anything so i didn't pay as much attention but um uh yeah everyone is 81 let's strike <laughs> <laughs> um oh yeah that also the um the airport guys were on yeah, patco yeah mm -hmm. i used to do a joke about them the professional air traffic controllers uh, how many amateur air traffic controllers <laughs> are there out there <laughs> hey let's let's go uh, control some air traffic come on um just for fun um yeah, quite a year. Um, but uh, so then, yeah, I went back, finished grad school, got my degree, uh, kept doing the stand up back at school. And then uh, had decided like midway through that year before I I did one interview, one business interview. And I was like, no, nah, I'm, I'm going to give the comedy a try. <laughs> and uh, I was still, you know, I was still pretty young. Uh, I was like 23. Um, and, uh, so I went out to LA Mark. So Mark Sandrowski, uh, the guy who would run laugh track, he had graduated already from Michigan undergrad the year before and, uh, moved out to LA to try to become a, he was a TV director, which he ended up being, he was the director of, uh, big bang theory for all these years. Um, and has gone on to, you know, does what Plenty of, lots of shows. Um, and Mar so Mark and Dave were roommates out in L.A., Dave Collier. And uh, so I went out and I had a place to stay with them for a little bit until I could uh, get myself settled. And, um, uh, you know, just tried to find work. It was great knowing Dave. So so because Dave was uh, friends with Saget and Shanling. And they were both represented by Brad Gray, or all, all three of them, I should say, were, were represented by Brad Gray. And um, 
So Shandling was a great, you know, when I came out, that's how I met him. And it was a great opportunity to write, learn so much from Gary about the business and about just how to write and about comedy. Um, and, uh, and, and I started finding, looking for other opportunities in terms of writing. I, a guy who was notorious for needing writers was Byron Allen. He was hot from, I can't remember what, but I remember writing for Byron Allen and, um, and then, and trying to do stand up on my own, just all the one nighters around LA and trying to get in at the improv and the comedy store and all that stuff. And, um, you know, just knowing it was going to take some time and working it and, and trying to get better. And, uh, and, and occasionally, once I'd moved out to L.A., I was uh, accepted in Cleveland as uh, somebody who could perform at the at the club and, you know, at least be first a middle act and then a headliner. And um, so, you know, other than other places started uh, around the Midwest, started accepting me. So I slowly started having some gigs here and there where I could come back and make a little bit of money. But I had my day job in L.A. delivering sandwiches and, you know, working at a office uh, supply store, that kind of stuff. And, um, yeah, so I went out in uh, 82 out to L.A. and I was uh, hung on for two to three years, two, uh, two years before uh, I came back to Cleveland. And that's when I really started getting comedy work. Did you meet Larry David or did uh, Jerry Seinfeld bring you in for... Seinfeld. Um, Jerry brought me in. I, I did not know Larry at all. I didn't know Jerry. I, I knew Jerry enough that like just we'd said hello a couple times or maybe I was on, you know, in some <coughs> show with him or whatever where I did five minutes or, I, you know, there were, but I, I didn't like he wouldn't know me if I called or anything. Um, but he was in. So they did, uh, uh, like, Spring of 90 was when the Seinfeld Chronicles aired. Um, as a, uh, just a spring show. They had four episodes, I think it was. And uh, I watched that, and I was like, oh, man, this is right up my alley. I, I, should, <laughs> I should write for this. Um, and uh, then Jerry was uh, in Cleveland, like in May, this time of year, when he... Um, uh, and he was doing shows and he wasn't sure if actually he was here when the show got picked up for the full season for the following year. And, uh, I went down to see him and I, I wasn't going to even go. And then my, my manager was like, yes, you have to go reintroduce yourself. Tell him you're interested in writing on the show. Like, okay. Okay. I'll go. And, uh, I did that. I went up to him and Jerry was very friendly. And I said, uh, you know, I, joked around with him for a minute or two and then I said hey you know uh, be interested in in submitting some stuff for the show and he said well actually we're looking for somebody and um, uh, so I went home and uh, sat down and got like I think I sent him six pages six to ten pages of material that I thought just you know stand-up material that I thought would be appropriate for him and um he called me the day he got it and said this is great stuff you're on board and uh you know i was uh obviously i was i was thrilled um i i think i had a little paul reiser might have uh helped me 
somewhat because I had been writing for Paul. Um, it's, it's, just, it's just going up to these people. I went up to Paul. I was performing in uh, Pittsburgh um, at the uh, Funny Bone in Pittsburgh. And um, Paul wasn't on the show, but he stopped into the club because uh, he was visiting his in-laws. His wife, uh, he had met his wife at the, at the Funny Bone there. Uh, she was a waitress, uh, and they were back in town. Um, and so Paul just stopped in the club, and we started talking. And um, I'd always been a fan of Paul's. And I said, you know, if you need anybody to write any stand-up material for you. Because he was, he was doing a little, he wasn't doing any stand-up at the time necessarily, but he was, because uh, he was on. My Two Dads. Yeah, he was on my two dads, or he he was, and he was doing movies or whatever, and he was, um, I don't know where exactly he was at the, at the time, but he was certainly doing Letterman and Carson and all the talk shows all the time, and so, you know, he had that pressure of coming up with stuff for, you know, I, I, people sometimes don't know, but people aren't exactly just off the cuff super witty like that they have some story or some bit they want to get into and the host will lead them into it and 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 work with them on it so uh paul was doing some things and he was like man i've got a letterman coming up and i got nothing uh can you you know if you want to try something i was thinking of something on taxes i think it was tax season or so whatever so so I wrote some stuff for Paul and he loved it and he used it on Letterman. <laughs> I was like, oh man, this is great. And Paul and I have had a good relationship ever since and continue. I actually have been writing for him last year just because he was going back on the road a bit. So I, uh, so anyway, that's all to say that Paul and Paul and Jerry were friends. And, you know, so I think Paul might have put in a good word for me or at least vouched for me saying, yeah, this guy keeps coming up with good stuff and I keep using it and it works. Um, and, uh, so Jerry, you know, could not only just look at the stuff on the page, but also, uh, you know, had somebody else telling him that, that, uh, I was, <laughs> I was worthy. And, uh, yeah, so he hired me for, because what they were looking for in the beginning, um, I'm sure you remember they had to stand up before the show to open the show they had stand up and then at the close the show they had stand up because the whole conceit of the show was this is how jerry's daily life relates that it comes into play in his in his stand-up and so you could see something from the show or some idea the genesis of it there and it, it shows up in the stand-up sometimes they would have them even in between where you would cut away from something so that that was what they were they uh, needed somebody to do because Jerry was concerned. He had all the pressure of writing the shows, acting in them, you know, producing them, and he didn't know if he could get the stand-up. Uh, you know, or didn't want to burn all his stand-up and whatever. So he said, "Oh, I better get somebody," and and so that was uh, what they hired me on for. And then you pitched uh, the limo. Yeah, that was after I. Um, I wasn't uh, on staff anymore at the time, but um, yeah, I pitched the limo. I mean, I started pitching ideas after I left. <laughs> I was pitching ideas. The, the, the fax machines would be going all the time. That's what I was the uh, technology of the day. And I would um, just fax pages and pages to Larry. And um, 
I mean, it was good that I had the, my time there on staff, so I had a good relationship with all the guys, and or all the guys, meaning Larry and Jerry, basically, and Larry Charles. And, um, you know, people are always coming up going, uh, oh, I got a great idea for Seinfeld. Here's an idea for Seinfeld. I mean, now they don't do it especially, but at the time, everybody was coming up with to me. And I, I'm not saying, you know, I, plenty of those ideas were were potentially good ideas that people would come up with. I mean, I, some of them were, of course, you know, no. just stupid things where you don't, you don't have a sense or you're not a writer, but okay. So then finally, but some would come up with good stuff, but I think back and I go, man, I pitched probably 400 ideas for every one that made it. So I got, I got three ideas. I, I probably did pitch 1200. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, because it's so hard to just find something the, the one thing that uh, you know is a, is appealing that has enough potential for a story is funny enough for a story is and uh, is relatable enough for Larry David to you know to like it and and then to have the legs to to pull it off and and to be something that they haven't thought of already and because doesn't Larry have a notebook probably filled with a thousand ideas for the show oh, too oh yeah oh yeah. He has a yeah. He's got his notebook that he's always writing in, and uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, Larry's brilliant, and to find something, I, I mean, it's almost as satisfying. Obviously, the uh, the credit and the and the payment uh, of getting something on the air is great, but just getting something that Larry likes, you go, hey, wow, <laughs> I I hit one. Was it easier with the bookstore because he wasn't there to get it? Um, actually it was harder. Um, it was a little bit of, I think Spike Ferriston was the guy at the time was running the show and they liked, I had had an idea that, that Spike liked for something else for, but they were, you know, I, it was so frustrating when they had just come up with something and they were using it. I had an, I, I can't remember what it ended up being, but something about a giant wallet that like doesn't fit in your pocket or you can't sit on your wallet or whatever. Yeah, George George had a giant wallet. Yeah, yeah. So I had some kind of wallet and they were like that. But then, so then I came up with a bookstore and it depended. So like they had uh, several storylines for that show. He had several, Spike had several storylines that he wanted to use and he couldn't figure out, you know, how they were going to all fit together and, you know, which ones he, he was going to use or this and that so they um they liked the bookstore then i pitched the bookstore and they liked that but they couldn't they wanted to use it they go this is perfect and they wanted to use it but they couldn't fit it in without these other stories and they had too many too many writers on the credits and so they had to you know end up putting this with that so anyway the, the point being when larry was there it was just like larry would go okay you know, this is it, and I'm. I know one story, and I have my own story, or I'm going to be able to use carry this story through, or whatever it was, and uh, uh, so that was that was better than with all all the different writers later on. So it wasn't wasn't any easier per se, uh, and more because uh, also you had they had a much bigger staff by later yeah. uh, later on. You know, I was. Even if I there weren't twenty guys pitching four hundred ideas, there was maybe you know two guys and the, and two 
three guys on staff when I first was pitching them ideas. And then later on, when Spike was there, you know, there were 10 writers on staff and however many more pitching ideas and it was a hit show and all this stuff. So it was harder to get through in that regard. When I was there, you know, I, I wouldn't have necessarily gone in on a pitch meeting for somebody else. The only other, the only freelance pitch uh, that I know of my first one was Peter Melman uh, did one. And um, I don't know if they looked at other guys, but it wasn't really, I was kind of off in my own office and I would write, I would get the scripts and then I'd pour over the scripts and, and pick them apart for stand-up bits and subject matter that I could work on stand-up. And, and I would write all this stand-up for the, for the bit, for the uh, scripts. And then uh, Jerry would, uh, I'd give it to Jerry and he'd pick out what he liked. And then we would go to the clubs together every night and work on, uh, you know, go to the improv or the, mostly the improv. And um, he would go up and do five, ten minutes of, you know, he probably opened with a, something he knew would get a laugh. And then he'd go into the new stuff that we'd work on and uh see what worked and what didn't and um you know we winnow it down that way um but it was it was another uh, kind of master class in uh, stand-up watching him and how you know what we were work being able to work on it and and uh, figure out what we're doing so and occasionally some of it was you know, some, sometimes they'd come up. So I would give him the thing. The, Jerry's favorite thing was the uh, notes, notes on performance. So I would take notes when I'd w watch him do whatever bits. And then the next morning I'd get in early and write down my notes and either <clears throat> mostly improvements in, you know, in the writing of it. I wouldn't, I would occasionally give him a, a note on why I thought something didn't work if he didn't do it right or where we need to put it within the set or something like that. But, um, and he loved notes on performance. He'd get in that every morning. That was his, his favorite thing. And it was great hanging out at the club. I remember meeting Leno for the first time. And I gave, I gave, uh, oh, one, Jerry and I were working on, that was my favorite, favorite point was Jerry and I were working on something and Leno was there. And I came up with a line right there with Leno. And, um, and Jerry went on stage and the line killed. And, uh, and he, he came off stage and he looked at me and he goes, you, sir, are very good. <laughs> so yeah. A few days later, I wasn't working there anymore. But <laughs> <laughs> that, that bit of his about left-handed uh, compliment and lefty, and that's from his stand-up, right? Yeah. As a lefty, I always he's, remember. He's, he's a lefty. Jerry's a lefty. Yeah, so am I. That's why I know that. But how long did you stay before going back to Cleveland? I never, I didn't officially move out there. Like I had a place there where I was, you know, on a temporary housing basis. And I would uh, try to sneak away every other weekend to come back here. Uh, once my wife came out to, uh, to visit, that's when we got pregnant. <laughs> so my oldest is a Seinfeld baby. <laughs> um and uh you know so i didn't uh we always kept the home here that that was a main consideration my uh wife is a physician was a physician and um 
she, uh, you know, had a good practice and wanted to, it, it, I'm sure she obviously, she was an OBGYN. She could have found work in LA, but, um, we were trying to start a family and like I said, wanted to figure it'd be better and more stable. Her, her job is much more stable than mine and, uh, let her lead. And so we could always stay here in Cleveland and be covered whether I was working or not or whatever kind of job I had and it allowed me the freedom you know in LA the expenses would have been much more and I would have had a lot more responsibility and uh, a more hectic life I think plus as a, as a Jewish guy you marry a doctor yeah <laughs> yeah my, my mother on Mother's Day here was very happy she got three sons one married a doctor Two married doctors, I'm sorry. Two married doctors and one married a lawyer. So. Oh, and you got a book out of it, too. And I got a book out of it, too, yeah. Yeah, she's been my muse for many things. Um, yeah, sleeping with your gynecologist. Yeah. Tales from my marriage to an OBGYN. That was, uh, yeah, that was uh, a, um, got some great response. Got some very negative response that turned out to be uh you know, obviously a negative response helped sales, but uh, it, it was a little bit challenging. My wife, one of the uh, local newspaper columnists gave a very scathing review of the book because she felt I told stories that I shouldn't tell because uh, that they were private stories or that my wife shouldn't be telling me these stories, even though they were completely unidentifiable and weren't even... You know, my wife was just one of the doctors I interviewed for these stories. And uh, and then so she wrote this negative column. And then and at the end of it, she said, uh, if you agree with me, you can write them, call the medical board, the state medical board uh, on Dr. Jaffe and my wife. And, wow. And people actually did it. And she had to appear before the board. And she felt, oh, it was just awful. So... Uh, we actually now, years later, and it's a long story that I won't get into, but we're somewhat friendly with the columnist, and she apologized and realized she did a horrible thing. And, <laughs> and of course, my wife was clear she hadn't done anything wrong. But, but the book, uh, the book, people love the book. It, uh, it got picked up by um, Danny DeVito, uh, company production company at some point back in 2001 or 2002 and uh they uh you know they did the pilot script but uh then it didn't make it past there and google gaga baby talk dictionary yeah that was nobody just, complained about that right nobody complained about that no all right that was just a, a fun little i thought a gift book for new new babies would be a good gift book and it did all right you know some sales it's it's a fun fun book you can pick up you know read a page or two and laugh and then put it down again and are you still selling elijah's cups um this year elijah's cups were back on the market through somebody else i i let somebody else do it it was uh it was fun for me i think 2007 was when i can't oh yeah it was 2007 because my it was it wouldn't have happened if my dad hadn't passed away um but i was really would have loved him to see it um it's a uh for those of who aren't jewish you uh 
Do you have any listeners who aren't Jewish? <laughs> <laughs> I think we let them listen, yes. Yeah, you let them in. Um, so uh, at Passover, we, it's tradition to have Elijah's cup, and you fill it with wine at the beginning of the evening, and it sits there filled with wine, and it, later on, after the meal and everything, you invite Elijah to come drink from the cup, and someone makes a show of opening up the door to let Elijah in to come drink. And, you know, we would do this when I, my father let our family Seder and we had people over, we were, uh, but we never did anything unique with it. And then after my father passed, we were invited to somebody else's for Seder and they made this show of like, they would shake the table when Elijah was invited in to make it look like the wine was moving or something. And the, and I said, no, that is so lame. You should, you should come up with some kind of cup where the wine disappears from the cup. And then I started thinking, I go, oh, I should do that. It'd be, it'd be fun. And I, I talked to a friend of mine, Carrie Pollock, is a, a great uh, comedy magician from Cleveland originally. He runs a comedy club now in Hilton Head, South Carolina. Um, and uh, he, I talked to him about, well, how can we make this work and all the different things. And so together we, we came up with it and I started manufacturing them. And that's just what, because my we had a small manufacturing business in the family. So when I was manufacturing these, I felt like, you know, I was uh, channeling my father and um, using that polishing these cups and which is the thing we used to polish some aluminum an aluminum product. And I had to pull them out of the barrel. And all. So, uh, but yeah, so I had this cup that uh, when Elijah comes, you open the door, you make a show of Elijah coming and then uh, the wine actually disappears from the cup. And uh, we sold a couple hundred, uh, but it was major, major work. The first year we sold a couple hundred and then the second year it did better and I corrected some of the problems and came up with a little better design. And I did it probably four years and then it was just too much effort, too involved and in, you know, what I was doing with other, it was taking up too much time and uh, I, it's, I just, so I stopped doing it, but I would continue to get calls. I left, you can probably find it online, I guess. Maybe you saw it online again. I don't yeah. Know. yeah. Yeah. So, um, and, and would have an, you know, a note and I hope maybe somebody else would take it on the responsibility. So finally, like two, three years ago, some, somebody called me and was looking for the cup, you know, can, where can I get it? Where can I get it? I said, I don't know, you, you can make it on your own if you want. I'll, you know, give you the rights to it, uh, whatever. And so uh, he was like, oh, well, okay. And this guy's taking it, uh, taking it on. And he finally this year um, had it on the market. It's it's much more expensive than I had it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like $69 now, but maybe, wow. you know, I haven't even talked to him how many he sold. I get some, you know, small royalty. I just wanted to see it get done because it's something people love it's just the, the response that people get and their kids and just watching people trying to figure out how how it happens and how do you do it and <laughs> but yeah it's my little contribution to comedy magic so how often do you do stand up now or before covid well before covid i was probably doing it i i was keeping up maybe once a month or so i wasn't doing it that much I'd write for myself and then, and then I would, 
you know, get a, once every three months I'd get a gig and then I would have to say, okay, I got to, you know, get on stage and get in practice a little bit to be able to <laughs> give them a decent show. Um, and, uh, and work in the new stuff that I was, uh, had written. And, um, uh, then, yeah, since COVID, COVID hit and of course there was nothing. And since then I, I haven't hardly gotten on stage. Um, in fact, I, I kind of, I feel like I officially retired about a month ago because, uh, somebody called me, uh, actually Dave Schwenson runs the thing here. Dave was the, um, booker for, um, evening at the improv, uh, for many years. So he, he was one who booked me years ago and he lives in Cleveland. He goes back and forth between Cleveland and Chicago. Um, and, uh, and, and down in Florida. And he, um, he does this thing where he has a class for people want to try their hand at stand up. Uh, they do like a three week class on a Saturday, every Saturday for three weeks. And then they, get to perform at the improv on a Wednesday night. And so then he brings in a professional headliner to close the show so that, you know, all the family members and friends of the people who saw their friend do two minutes, have somebody else that they can, you know, feel like they got a, right. a decent show out of. So, uh, yeah, I've done that for many years for him. You have to do like 20 minutes. And, uh, he, um, he called me to do it, and I was like, you know what? I got, I got new stuff that I want to try. But for me to get together a set and put it together, and I, there aren't many things that I'm getting an opportunity to do this stuff for. I was like, you know what? I, I think I'm done. <laughs> so that was it. I, and then when I said after I hung up, I was like, oh, I guess I'm retired now officially, completely. People always ask me, I tell them I'm retired. But uh, when I actually turned down a, a paying gig, even though it's not like, you know, little, little pay, but, uh, you know, if I turned down a paying gig, I'm, I guess I'm officially retired. I like the bit you did on this, uh, the one that was on, I guess it was a friend of yours taped it. Um, uh, the Cleveland Empire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the host mispronounced your name and he yelled, it's Jeffy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was. That was a friend who had, he'd never seen me perform before. Uh, his name was Brian Byers. He was um, uh, he also moved back here. Uh, from, we we got introduced to each other because he spent many years in L.A. Did a lot of uh, acting and did a bunch of sitcoms and you know that guy. He was a kind of a comedy actor, very funny guy, great guy. So I said, hey, you know, I'm doing stand up. Come on out and see me. And I asked him to record it last second and. <laughs> So, yeah. Yeah, really funny, but I'm just thinking about how much of the stuff that you talked about you wouldn't be allowed to say today. Like, uh, the, like the signs, the bit about the signs. The signs. The, you know, uh, mentally challenged. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, two, two things. One, I, I mean, that was, a, that was a joke that I wasn't sure. Yeah, always I had a little angst in me about should I be saying this anyway? Um, but it always got a huge laugh and it, it's a difference if you want to, I'm not worried about being canceled because there's nothing no. I can be canceled from. So you're retired. Um, yeah. If I, if I get a laugh in the club, that's, that's fine. You know, and, and nobody's, nobody's coming up and saying they were offended by it. So, and I think I'm pretty, I, I mean, I'm like to think of myself as a pretty sensitive and, uh, 
you know, a person who would make Ron DeSantis unhappy. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to do, there are things that I check myself on. Uh, so, you know, I, uh, this is, this is my, that was, that was kind of a stretch, definitely a stretch joke for me. Do you see those signs that says like, um, speed limit 55 speed check by radar? Right. I always picture Gary Berghoff standing on the on the side with one of those guns, but no one's gonna get that. I like it. <laughs> yeah, no, Gary Berghoff. I would say more. I I don't have too many that would be that I couldn't say today because they weren't politically uh, correct. I I have many more that I couldn't say today because they're out of date for other reasons. Either they don't. Mostly probably because they don't fit my personal life anymore. I mean, that's that's the thing that I always, you know, I was always writing for my personal life. And uh, even when I'm writing for somebody else, the, the basis of it is probably something that I can relate to. And I'm just hoping that, you know, Paul Reiser also is the same or Jerry's the same, whatever it is. And if there's no nothing lost, they just won't do the joke if it doesn't fit them or it doesn't feel right to them. But for me, um, you know, there, there's many things like even pre-COVID or jokes about, I probably had jokes in there about my daughter uh, meeting her husband and or it was her boyfriend at the time or something and now it's her husband and, um, you know, and then they've had, they have a kid, I have a grandkid. And so, you know, stuff about meeting the boyfriend, right? you know, doesn't, that was, that was five, six years ago. Right. Now you know him six years. Right. So it doesn't, uh, I'm like, well, it, it rolled into, it had great segues and lots of offshoots that were great jokes here and there off of it. So now if I want to keep even those other jokes, I got to go, okay, well, where does that come in? And how is that a line that still makes sense? My wife's not Jewish. And I said that, uh, you know, last week she asked me to fix something. <laughs> so. Clearly doesn't understand. Nah. Doesn't understand the religion. Exactly. You get <laughs> estimates. But yeah, so but, but we've been married uh sixteen years and okay. you know, so now it's just like it doesn't work. My my wife is uh is a convert, so she uh, wasn't Jewish to start, but she by the way, um your wife is a very pretty woman. I don't wanna thank you. So and a doctor, Jesus. I saw the clip of her a clip of you guys on Fox. Oh, on um, uh, talking about the PPMI and the you doing the spinal tap? Yeah, yeah. I was just going to ask you about uh, your show. Uh, side effects may include. Oh. When did when did she get diagnosed? If it's not a subject, you know, mind. So uh, well, first of all, I should say that I. I should watch that clip uh, and feel, I don't know if you're keeping up on the news, but uh, anybody who's interested, I mean, it didn't make national, big national news, is that they j did just come up this, uh, a month ago, a uh, biomarker for Parkinson's. Yeah, I did. And uh, that study that I was in that we were talking about on Fox that was just starting, I was, uh, I didn't know how many, but I knew it wasn't a lot, but in the, uh, since they've uh, announced this finding of the biomarker, 
uh, I was one of 163 healthy controls um, who were do who were in the study, and I was probably I was for sure one of the first five if I wasn't the first. Mm. Um, so I was very we were very excited that this it's it's big big news and to think back I don't know what the date of that was that I was I was probably 2011 or something like that. Yeah. But, um, right. Yeah. So uh, to think that we've been going at it for all these years. Um, so Karen was diagnosed in, um, 2007 or eight, uh, depending on, uh, you know, when, when you accept your <laughs> diagnosis, okay. and which is a common story amongst many people who have Parkinson's that they don't, uh, especially young, young onset Parkinson's like my wife, meaning somebody who got it before the age of 50. Um, she was in her late forties and, um, people don't believe it or you know you have some minor whether it's a twitch like michael j fox had and his pinky or you just have some shoulder pain or something like that it doesn't necessarily you, people don't go oh it's parkinson's a lot of neurology yeah. don't get it right or if they do if somebody is it happened with my wife somebody said they thought it was parkinson's and uh and then with my wife it was a little bit different they didn't explain why that they were confirming with a uh, an MRI, which she went to get, and the MRI was negative, which was the confirming thing, but we didn't realize that, and he didn't come back and tell us. So, you know, we were just like, well, Parkinson's happens to old people. You know, it's why would even though she was a doctor, she knew very little about Parkinson's, and so it wasn't until a year later that she was seeing another neurologist and. Uh, realized that uh, actually while she was in the waiting room she realized that because she started trying to do some things with her her, it, her she was having trouble in, in a particular arm in her right arm and she tried to do some things with her feet just sitting in the waiting room and realized oh she can't do something with her feet as well and realized oh this isn't just my shoulder that has some orthopedic issue so yeah she was 47 48 and you turned it into a show and we turn it into show, yeah. So, um, well, it was. It's been quite a journey. No, um, yeah. Obviously, it was. Uh, uh, it was something that she. Um, son went away. Um, she uh, um, decided to keep a secret in the beginning because she was a, a um, not only a surgeon, but uh, she was a moil. Um, <laughs> which for those of uh, people in the audience who aren't Jewish, it's the person who performs the ritual circumcision in the Jewish religion on eight day old babies, boys. And um, so she had just started, like she'd been doing it for maybe a year and uh, was very much in demand and, and needed um, here in Cleveland because there was a, an Orthodox moil um, who was doing all the work, but there weren't, wasn't anybody who either didn't want to go through the Orthodox uh, or uh, if they had, say the mother was Jewish and the father wasn't or something like that. They, you know, there were all kinds of situations where the Orthodox Moyer would say, oh no, I won't do it. And Karen was willing to, to do it, to give these people their, uh, the, what, they, what they wanted. And, um, but for a Moyle, <laughs> it's there's jokes, you know. It's, yeah. Uh, 
jokes about a shaky, a shaky moyle, a moyle with Parkinson's. I mean, come on. That's uh, the only the person who laughed the hardest. I think we went to a, um, a Fox foundation event and uh, Michael J. Fox was there and we were ended up at this after party thing with him and Karen told him and uh, he just cracked up, fell on the floor. <laughs> so, um, so Karen was keeping it a secret. You know, we were trying to deal with that between us, and uh, that was very. Uh, it's hard enough having a diagnosis like this, and then to try to be figuring it out and, and keeping it a secret was uh, an extra challenge. And getting used to all this medication. So uh, one of the side effects that the her neurologist said is potential side effects could be. Uh, obsessive behavior and um, so she uh, he, he said uh, you know like uh, gambling or uh, uh, uncontrollable shopping or uh, eating or sexual uh, behavior and uh, I was like well if she gets one I'm that's the one I want uh. <laughs> and uh, and amazingly enough, she got that uh, hypersexuality, and uh, that was me trying to keep up with her. All of a sudden, you know, it was. I think we were fairly typical in that I was uh, more interested in sex and frequency than she was, and uh, it, that completely got switched around. And she just uh, was insatiable, and for a while, it was a lot of fun. But uh, at some point, it just got too much for me. And so that's basically the play. That's when I started writing the play to kind of get this off my chest. And uh, kind of in conjunction with the play being ready, um, she started telling the secret that she had Parkinson's and uh, dealing with that in the community. And so it was okay. We could finally show, you know, perform, perform the play. And uh, it did great. It was... I uh, got picked up by a producer in Chicago and played there for months and went around uh, the Midwest a bit. Of course, played in Cleveland a, a couple times and then um, eventually hit, uh, we got off Broadway for a couple week run um, in New York. And uh, so, yeah, it was, uh, it was great. I, you know, thoughts of turning it into a, film or something but it hasn't nothing's happened it's kind of an odd <laughs> be careful what you wish for kind of uh <laughs> show so uh and i think it, it hit um it, not many things in all in my career have i have been had a purpose behind them they've mostly just been to be funny um but this had a you know a message behind it and a lot of people certainly in the parkinson's community could really relate to it and um, and understand all the things that I touch on in the play and that we were going through and you know most a, a large part of it being keeping a secret and having to do that and um, so uh, so you got a lot of laughs but also a lot of thank yous right right yeah that was th that's a good way of putting it and, but one other one thing I wanted to, how did your your daughters uh, like hearing about their parents' sex life. <laughs> they loved it. They've always been asking us. What <laughs> <laughs> now they have a show to see instead of just asking. No, they they um, 
they've been great. Uh, you know, they, um, they, they haven't complained at all. They're a little bit embarrassed, but you know, they got used to it very quickly and they're just like, well, that's, you know, mom and dad, they're out there and, 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 and it's okay to be that way, you know? So, yeah. um, I mean, that's, was their, their seeming response to it. And in fact, uh, it was kind of a baptism by fire for my youngest daughter. Um, her boyfriend, she started dating somebody and, uh, um, we hadn't met him and I mean, they've been dating for months and, uh, she was coming to New York. She lives in Chicago and she was coming to New York to see the play during the run. And there was a snowstorm on the weekend of it that she was going to, uh, come in and the flights were canceled and everything. So she couldn't come that weekend. And her, the next weekend, her boyfriend had been away. And the next weekend her boyfriend was available. And so if he wanted to, come with her she was going to come see it then and so he he came with her and uh his first meeting of <laughs> the parents was a, a play about his, his girlfriend's parents sex life uh <laughs> so he was very good about it too and passed the test and actually ended up in new york like three months later with us all for my oldest daughter's wedding and uh we had um had an Airbnb that had the, uh, well, it was like three of us there. Yeah. Well, it was the four of us there, my wife and I, and, and two of my daughters who were coming in from out of town. And then he became the fifth. Then it was a, uh, small Airbnb with one bathroom. And we figured, all right, if Sam can do that, he's, he's got this. So they're still together. And I think, I think it'll last. They live together now. So all right, good for you. Made it. Yeah. Thank you for doing this. Oh, sure. My pleasure, Ian. Oh, good luck with it. And uh, yeah, you're how many episodes have you? Uh... <laughs> this is like 164. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I like, said, once I get past 150, I got to get to Mark Jaffe. <laughs> Thanks, I've man. had Peter Melman on. Oh, okay. Well. Yeah, good. Yeah, Peter, Peter's very funny. And he's, he's, uh, yeah. He, he, he got he, into stand up. He got into stand-up? Yeah, he's doing stand-up for like the last four or five years. Yeah. If I was in a place like, he's in New York, right? L.A. Oh, he's in L.A., okay, yeah. I mean, if I was in a place like New York or L.A. where I could, you know, would regularly be able to get time and stuff, but here it's, yeah, there was a reason I went to L.A. in the first place, you know, so. (laughs) But now the reason uh, to stay here isn't to do comedy, so Uh, happy to be, happily retired. That's good. And the grandkid is close? No, she's in Brooklyn. Ah. But, uh, we make every effort to get there and do trips together, and she comes here occasionally. And so, yeah, grandkids are, man, it's fun. Waiting for the next one. We'll see. And then you get to give them back when you're, when you're done. <laughs> yeah, they're they're just, they're fun. I can't, the, but those jokes, you know, I either have old man jokes or, uh, you know, three-year-old jokes. Right. <laughs> Soon I'll get into knock-knock jokes or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thank you very much. All right, my pleasure, Ian. Have a good day.